So let's start fresh again. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we can just cut that, that'd be that'd be great. I'll, I'll edit it all together into a, just a bunch of dog barks, and <laughs> then we'll just, just go right into the <laughs> into the topic. <laughs> that could be the cold open day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I forgot where I was. Something about <laughs> chibi. talking about human overpopulation and how it's really happening. Did you hear this as an issue when you were a kid? Because I feel like it's brought up every now and then. Like, you know, I feel like Jake even mentioned it like a few weeks ago, just kind of offhand. You yeah, know? it feels like I, I definitely was like a seemed like a political talking point in the early 90s type of thing. Um uh, but it was also it was often like centered around um, at least in my household that watched a lot of Rush Limbaugh's TV show and that type of stuff at the time. It of was course. centered around um, like the the problem with welfare and the problem with uh, having to have sustainability for uh, the poorer undeserving classes of the United States. We're gonna get ourselves in a real bind. Um, and we can't afford just paying for all these freeloaders type of argument more than it was like, oh no, we're not going to have enough, uh, uh, agriculture, agriculture to actually feed all these people type of thing. It was more, much more focused on the financial aspects of not wanting to give quote unquote handouts to people on welfare. And if we just let, keep letting them have all these kids, they're just going to, uh, drain us dry. Yeah, it's... But the, they also were against abortion, so it's kind of weird. It was a very weird catch-22 of the of the 90s time. Yeah, that's why I find the new bent on it is kind of interesting. But the... I guess, just to go back, like, a little history lesson, which I swear to you, I've heard the term Malthusian a hundred times. Uh, never once looked into what it meant or or who it was. Uh, had no idea that it was talking about like overpopulation. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know where the term originated either. I like. I knew the Ehrlich guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The so the the original like 
thought process and everyone's probably seen the those graphs before somewhere because people use it for like wow isn't this crazy and also oh isn't this terrifying Mm -hmm. but the human population graph over time uh, they always start at 10,000 bc um for some reason uh humans have been around a long time i don't know why you want to show uh you know 100 people on a graph that's pretty interesting to me right or or show that there were a lot there was a big a mass of people and then it got really small and then it got big again then it got small (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) like you know as as josh is always showing to me whenever i bring up climate change he's like the earth has gotten warm and cold before (laughs) yeah it's a a regular cycle (laughs) it goes up and down the the orig- the originator, I guess, of this idea, which, you know, uh, highly doubt it was his original idea. He probably stole it from somebody because um, this happened in England in 1798. Dude, they were, they were in that, at least the Wikipedia, they're talking about the first people complaining about it in ancient Greece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean. Like, man, we're so overpopulated. There's just shit all in the streets. Too, too much pollution. We're going to have yeah. to start culling people pretty soon. I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, well, that uh, mentality lasted for another few thousand years. <laughs> so we get to this uh, British... Depending on which video you watch, um, which article you read, most the descriptors the, for most this Most of them are changed. from Matt Walsh. <laughs> yes, Matt Walsh is a big player in this. He That's loves overpopulation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The uh, I didn't realize he had tattoos, um, <laughs> which so he's going to hell, right? Because yeah, uh, he lives his life by the Leviticus code with me, right? Um, so you two are going to be buddies. Yeah. Uh, so the the he's a British scholar, a British uh, economist, British like clergy or something like he was clergy to the king or something i don't know he had a bunch of different titles uh he was you know a rich white guy in england in 1798 reeling from the events two decades prior probably Mm -hmm. just sobbing every night um and he in his uh tiny little pea brain thought People are populating at an exponential rate. Every family is having more than replacement level, which is a term we'll use probably a lot, replacement level children. They're having more than two children. Yeah. If you have uh, a father and a mother and they have two kids, whenever the father and mother die, those two kids, you know, replace them in the population numbers. If you have more than that, it's going to grow as a population. Um, and at this time, people were having way more kids because way more kids were dying. Right. Well, you but, expected you expected to lose probably half your kids. Yeah. Before they would reach the age of twelve or so. But this was, and it's a holdover from you know a few centuries prior. That makes sense when you're trying to when you have smaller knit communities and stuff like that. You want to have more people to be able to do the things that you need to have the the tribe or the village or whatever survive. But around this time, we started seeing improvements in, in the world and them understanding, you know, basic sanitation sort of stuff, mm-hmm. things like that. So people were not 
you know, you weren't giving muddy water to your toddler and they were dying from diphtheria and you're just going, well, don't know what happened there. Yeah. Um, so you're seeing an improved rate of survival, which means there's an improve, uh, increase in population, but he was, uh, determined that crops grew at a linear rate. It was not exponential. We, we grew, we increased the volume of crops and eventually the population would outstrip the amount of crops we have. And then in his, in the Malthusian overpopulation sense, the people who deserve to have the food are not going to have as much because the poor uh, are going to be able to eat it. There's going, there's not enough wealth to go around. So this is just increasing the number of poor people and us rich people are going to have to suffer uh, because of this. Right. If this sounds familiar, that's because, you know, a lot of class society is built around this concept. Right. Right. That's then that it goes to the, uh, that, and that leads right into like the, uh, the Irish famine and all of that type of stuff. It's not like, it's not that they could just eat potatoes. It's that in order to solve the, the aristocrats needs for food, all of the food that was generated in Ireland was shipped over to England in order to feed the aristocrats and they were just left with potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not that they only grew potatoes in Ireland and then they had a blight. Uh, I believe like a ton of the cattle for England was, raised in ireland Mm -hmm. and and just shipped over like they're like no this is thanks for raising it yeah but no um so his solution maltus's solution is to kill poor people uh it was like literally wrote down in his book suggestions on you need to find the dirty parts of the city and you need to narrow the streets in order to court the plague to come back and kill off all Mm -hmm. of these poor people Uh, you need to move them out into swamps where they're going to catch diseases um and you know leave the clean parts of the cities and everything like that for us uh the you know he had like the the reason he wrote this was like in his intention was to refute um like utopian concepts that were being written about at this time um so it's it's not necessarily uh just off the dome no uh stimulating thoughts needed he's just like let's just kill poor people he's kind of like no we can't have a utopian dream because the poor people are going to have too much of it they don't deserve it yeah and or and also the little bit of nuance in that you have the utopian stuff that people are talking about philosophically at the same time when we're coming off of like uh famine and plagues and wars that have pretty much dominated the whole continent of europe at the time and there's a lot of considerable concern about can we have like a utopian peace ideal if all the wars are being fought over the fact that these people ran out of some land and they want to go over there and get more land because they ran out of some land that they needed or they ran out of some resources so they went to go fight and go steal the resources from other people in order to have resources for themselves if that is the thing that is driving all of the wars and conflicts 
um, and we can't figure out how to do this resource management, then rather than creating, uh, figuring out how to fill for higher demand, we just reduce the demand by reducing the people. And then that'll solve all the war problems too, because we won't have a bunch of conflicts over scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, he, his estimation too was, you know, we can kill as many poor people as we can. That's not going to solve it. But don't worry. Once we're killing more poor people, things like famine and war will take care of the rest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just preemptively <laughs> kill all the people that would die in the war, and then we won't have to have the war. Right. Yeah. We'll we'll kill all the poor people ourselves, and then that middle class that's suddenly starting to pop up, we'll send them off to war, and then you know the rich will. Uh, be fine again if this sounds familiar <laughs> this is, uh so it it kind of lost uh some fervor it came back up around you know the 1930s a little bit um but not as strongly as like you know just race science and yeah uh, it w- it was a it it came about before there was a robust understanding of any genetics, but yeah. it was it was a precursor to doing a lot of logic or uh, sort of in a vacuum logic thinking that would bring about eugenics. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't, you know, I believe, depending again on the video, like uh, or article, uh, like uh, well cited, well researched, peer reviewed. United States Conference of Catholic Bishops essay <laughs> discussing this. Um, the they say that it was like the uh, the God. What's the word? It's like the the basis, the foundation for eugenics or whatever. I don't think that it was actually necessarily the founding document that they were like, oh, this is actually a good idea. And look, we can look at these different races for who to kill. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it just kind of fits into some people, you know, like, yeah, it uh, worked as a good pretext. And if you already sort yeah. of laid the groundwork, you can see how it would be the next conclusion you could jump to from a scientific standpoint at the turn of the 19th century would be like, right. Oh, maybe it's not, maybe they're poor because of their genes. And that gives us an extra reason to, <laughs> to just wipe them out. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, and then, you know, uh, as the Catholic bishops uh, said, the Nazi regime tainted the idea. So it had to go underground until the <laughs> yeah, 1960s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, that's just usually the way it goes with like good ideas, especially ones that like come from the Bible or whatever. Like just sucks that it's so easy to co-opt those ideas for nefarious purposes. right (laughs) quit tainting my ideas (laughs) uh so in the 60s and and this you know i i know it um i listen to chapo as well so understanding how uh dark some of the corners of like ivy league schools and everything are how you know in your in the recesses of your mind, and if you listen to Fox News, um, Ivy League schools are, you know, they're these aristocratic uh, left-wing little cauldrons where blah, blah, blah. 
it's extremely right wing. That's where you get the best conservative Supreme Court justices. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Why would they draw from those schools? Oh, it's because they had to hone their craft fighting off the libs left and right. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, Bing Professor Emeritus of Population Studies of the Department of Biology of Stanford University and president of Stanford Center for Conservation Biology, Paul Ehrlich. Ehrlich? Ehrlich. That's the way I've always heard it, is Ehrlich. That sounds great. Um, He revived the argument in his 1968 book, The Population Bomb. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the thing that I I never read the book, but I I am familiar with this. Like, at least... Uh, whatever Time magazine articles about it in like the 80s and stuff like that. Well, the thing that's very interesting to me about it is the way that it's he's presented uh, a lot of the times as I come out of my defense of Ehrlich. Um, he's presented as like, oh yeah, he's predicting overpopulation. So we're going to need uh, in the future to... You know, if you take the lib- neoliberal stance, uh, curb uh, consumption and increase personal responsibility and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. His book is like predicting he, it's in 1968. It comes out. He's predicting like by the mid 1970s, there's going to be a worldwide famine. Okay. He has like he like put dates on <laughs> when we're going to reach That's- a cataclysmic you know, overture of, uh, humanity. Yeah. It's very culty of, I know when Jesus is coming back, I have, yeah, to, exactly. I did the math. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very, uh, you know, it, when you recognize it from that lens, you're like, okay, this is kind of, you know, and it, it was controversial at the time. It was, uh, picked apart at the time, but he, like his one quote is in the 1970s hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now meaning like there's no way to prevent yeah even if we like came up with a cool intervention system to like try to feed the planet it we're too late yeah yeah uh and the big argument is unless we check uh this growth with moral restraint uh, we will have disease, famine, war, and other disasters, widespread poverty, degradation of inve- inevitable, inevitably result uh, worldwide, not just in, you know, the global south or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, he's like going on speaking tours and all this kind of stuff. The, the thing that he didn't view or the thing that he didn't take into account, much like Malthus didn't take into account the Industrial Revolution, uh, Ehrlich didn't take into account at all uh, the Green Revolution, which was the increase in agricultural productivity that occurred between 1950 and 1984, where grain production increased by over 250%. Um, you know, the the world population grew by 4 billion since the beginning of the green revolution. We haven't hit mm-hmm. a worldwide famine yet. Yeah. Um, there, there are famines. Um, but again, he was very much like 
by the mid 70s, we're all going to be fighting each other for scraps. Yeah. Well, and famines now are caused, famines are more caused now by resource allocation. Like, you, right. for some reason, there's a conflict and you can't get the shipping channel to get to your country or your place to bring you the food or resources that you need to survive. It's very, very few places are self sustaining nation states where they just have a, all their internal resources and they <laughs> and they don't really need to interact with each other in order to get stuff that they need. Now it's all about like that's why the pandemic was such a big deal by messing up the um, the ability to trade goods at a at a right. expedited manner. That that was what caused the big shutdown. wasn't It wasn't because we didn't have the stuff. It's because it was just hard to move it around. We had the rubber ducks. Yeah. The 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 interesting thing that I found throughout all of this was like, okay, obviously disagree heavily with Malthus, disagree with Ehrlich on their view of the poor and how um, human population, I don't believe human population, there's any, it's a scourge or anything like that. Um, so if you just immediately look up things to refute this you got to be pretty careful <laughs> because the the right ha is also in certain segments very anti-malthusian because mm -hmm. um, they very, think yeah they think that it's a uh, ooh, this is a uh, the nail in the coffin for science and yes. Then they apply that nail in the coffin. It's also the same for climate science. It's also the same for all of this stuff, too. It's all just a bunch of bullshit. We can't strip the earth of its natural resources. <laughs> yeah, they, they use claims and they use, you know, actual cited things like, you know, uh, in China with the once they introduced the one child policy and before that. And then in. Uh, was it Peru, Peru or Chile? I think it's Peru, um, where there was like, you know, the government was trying to control population yeah, and like yeah. paid women to have abortions and stuff. And that's where the overpopulation thing really comes down to for a lot of people like Matt Walsh and uh, the Catholic bishops is this is actually just a ploy by the government to increase abortion because they just love killing fetuses, mm -hmm. um, which obviously... Well, and you have uh, the other example too of like Iran in the '80s, where they they tried to control it because they thought they were going to have too few people to like have an army to defend themselves against, whether it be America or whoever was coming in the '90s after the uh, their regime was overthrown, and so they promoted to all the women, "You need to be having lots of babies, especially sons, because we're going to have to." We need we we got 18 years to make an army. <laughs> right. And right. and so they did. And then like they had a huge overpopulation of young men with nothing to do because the war never came. And in order to fix that, they didn't go through and just start killing a bunch of men and babies in order to bring the population back into a manageable range. They uh, did the uh, different planning aspect of actually going to the women and teaching them about contraception and teaching them about like what it means, just teaching them the fertility cycle. Cause most of them weren't like even educated on just general health concepts of like just how you make a baby. 
like how this how these things work inside of you and that is the thing that shifted their birth rate back down to match like the world's average rate was just basic information and education of the female population yeah yeah i mean that's <clears throat> that is the thing that it comes back down to is uh like educating women on everything relating to uh, contraception or just general like how babies are made all those sorts of things um that decreases the population drastically and quickly mm -hmm. um but of course you need to have a country that is able and willing to educate women on those issues the but the the Ehrlich guy is like one he's still alive he's like 93 um and so he hasn't killed himself to save the population of the earth yet no he's draining our resources yet again uh he 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 like refuses to admit that he's like i made some mistakes but no basic mistakes i'm still like we still have famines in the world we're still due for this yeah uh you know crisis and all that kind of stuff we're going to reach uh carrying capacity of the world um which of course you're going to double down on if you're a scientist and that's why i brought up that this is a clear depiction of when science is void of political understanding how you can get wrapped up in things and honestly you know i sympathize with uh the catholic bishops and matt walsh types that this is a way that people can stop trusting science. If it's like this big, you know, he was interviewed on like 60 minutes, like five years ago or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, especially and the if, guy. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, the guy interviewing him is he's just like, so we're due for a catastrophe. And he's like, absolutely. Like, it's just, it, it's, there's no uh, actual scientific critique of those sorts of things whenever it's right. presented in the media. Or or just the, the scientist that makes the claim then just stands by the claim rather than doing the science part. Right. So, right. like, it's not... It's, it's another one of those things where if people categorize science as some sort of intellectual body, like, or, or think of it science as if it's, like, the Bible or something like that, right. then if you find one scientist who doesn't follow the scientific method and purports himself as scientist, then you're like, Oh, this whole thing's a scam. <laughs> yeah. Like Fauci. But if you, if you uh, think of science as like the methodology of coming to the truth, then you can notice, Oh, this guy isn't actually doing science. He's yeah, not, exactly. he's not rigorously testing his theory over and over again and then revising it based upon the new data and results. He's just sticking with whatever he thought his book sold in 1968. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he, of course, put out another book like in the 90s. Um, that book money runs out eventually. Um, <laughs> one final thing on him that I have, um, he also fancied himself like an economist and predicted that the not only were we going to have worldwide famines, but the price of raw materials and things was just going to skyrocket because of this, because there's just going to be too much scarcity, um, which we'll talk about probably next. And it will cause 
goods to be too expensive and that's why we'll start suffering and all this kinds of stuff. Um, so some other guy, some, I forget his name, um, Julian Simon, a, he was just a business professor, which chalk one up, chalk the first one up for business professor, <laughs> you know, he was, he was far enough away from it that he could see the science. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so what was that tweet? It was a few years ago that it was like, uh, when you're on a college campus, sometimes you'll walk by a business class and they'll be putting, they'll be writing on the board revenue minus cost equals profit. And people are taking furious notes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) so he made a bet with Ehrlich. He said, you pick any five raw materials you want. And I promise you the inflation adjusted rate over the next decade is they will be cheaper. Uh, and so he picked uh, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. Mm. Should have chosen lithium. Should have done lithium. He, he missed, <laughs> missed, missed out on that one. 1980 to 1990. So cell phones weren't really a thing. So I guess they weren't using lithium too much. I yeah. don't know. Um, all of the prices declined. So he lost that that bet that's like one other thing it's funny because you look at uh Ehrlich and you know on the right side where they give you like the little baseball card information mm-hmm. on wikipedia uh, it says like known for uh the population bomb book and then the uh simon Ehrlich wager <laughs> Which, <laughs> so did the simon Ehrlich wager ever come up in your household since you lived through the end no of- no we never talked i mean i and i doubt like we were like we were getting it all secondhand, you know, through the most conservative media outlets that you could find. So uh-huh. I doubt that they were uh, they were being real scrupulous about getting into anything that might disagree with whatever uh, grand conclusion that they were going to have on Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. Why didn't he pick gold? Yeah. Gold goes up, you know, I guarantee. I thought that was the whole deal why we all have to invest in it, because it's a guaranteed gainer. Yeah, I would like to know what the price of those things was from 1990 to like 1994. Because didn't the Gulf War wasn't that kind of those years? Uh, yeah. Well, like Gulf War is short. You know, it's whatever 90 days or 92 days or something like that. It's very oh. short engagement. I don't know. I was just born. <laughs> um, it didn't take long for Schwarzkopf to just storm across the desert with those tanks. What is, oh no, <laughs> I was like, I thought he was the black hole guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Schwarzschild. Okay. Schwarzschild radius is different than uh, Schwarzkopf, the five-star general of the armies in the first Persian Gulf War. <laughs> what a resume though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it went, went from the trenches in World War One doing uh, artillery <laughs> diagrams to all the way made it to the Gulf War. <laughs> Yeah. Artillery diagrams coming up with the game of golf, putting bunkers and things, you know, He's, an amazing mind. Yeah. So many Nobel prizes for so many different categories. <laughs> what is the Nobel prize for golf? Yeah. Why, why don't we give that one out? Uh, so I don't know. Did you have anything else on Ehrlich? Oh, uh, no. Mostly just that 
his predictions bombed. He revised them a couple times. I think went from 70s to like, oh no, the big one's going to happen in the mid 80s. You guys get ready. It's going to be like 1984. It's all going to happen. And then it didn't happen. And he's like, ah, yeah, but it could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of predictions, I did have some Jehovah's Witnesses come witness to me the other day. Oh, cool. They're the people. Did they tell you the... you were one of the counted? They don't know. That's the thing, oh, right? Oh, yeah. If they knew, then that would be that would make it a much shorter. Probably wrap it up in six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so strange. It's, it's, it's a shame it's, God isn't very uh, you know respectful of their time. It's there's what 144,000 people that will go to heaven. Something like that. Some very no small overpopulation number. in heaven. Yeah, they Not they figured resources. out they figured out we only have the resources for this many. <laughs> right. And no way and, to expand those resources at all. Once you get to heaven, that's it. That's these are just the resources. That's it. Do they believe in an eternal heaven? Or are you living out like one life in heaven? Uh see, I don't know. They they might also be similar to like uh modern day Protestants in that they believe that there is a uh after the tribulation and after the second coming of Jesus to earth, there's a rain on in like heaven while you get the earth ready. And then there's a millennial kingdom, which lasts a thousand years. And that's mm-hmm. back on the planet earth mm-hmm. where you, now it's all cleansed and it's all good the way it was intended to be. Of course. So that's the millennial kingdom. And then there's another stage after that of eternity. But you get the first, you get, everyone gets the thousand years of, you know, Disney world earth. Yeah, which honestly would probably be pretty boring. Yeah, if only 144,000 people were on the face of the planet during Disney World Earth, it's going to suck. Like, you're never going to see another person. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, that's the funny thing with, like, the Malthus, back to him real quick, is any video talking about him, they're like, you know, he started coming up with these things right when the human population hit 1 billion. Uh, <laughs> no way in hell he understood that there was one billion people on the planet you know no 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 like Like it's it's like that's like revisionist type of yeah pop science stuff to me like yeah he's he's looking at the streets of london and going we gotta do yeah he's looking out the window and i i doubt he like there is a global understanding of the planet at the time because you know we have had uh Copernicus and a bunch of people beforehand like explain how it all works to us and you know we understand it's not flat anymore um but I still don't think that has grown in the level of human consciousness at that time to the point where in your mind you have a picture of the earth right like that that's still so huge that you can't I don't even know if people could have that sort of imagination of it yeah, it's it's you know, it's one of those deals. You got to got to put yourself back into the perspective of what you're thinking about at that time, you know. Yeah, you almost um, have to have been one of the few people who got a chance to look in one of the few good telescopes to look at like Mars or Jupiter and be like, "Wow, that's a whole other world out there." <laughs> and then you could maybe have the internal thought in your head that, "Oh, I'm sitting on one of those worlds too, and maybe there's other people on those looking at me." And then you could feel real small. But still, that's only a handful of people on the whole globe that have that kind of perspective. Yeah. 
And but no other aliens have that perspective. No, no. They're out to get us. So um I guess the the actual human population growth, um, like the actual uh numbers we're gonna hit. This is where the modern sort of Malthusian and sometimes anti-Malthusian takes come into account of they're like, well, we are going to hit, you know, the numbers range uh, pretty widely between nine, uh, 10 billion and like 14 billion, which is like a way upper limit. Yeah. Like scientists, most scientists don't think we're going to reach 12 billion on the planet at any one point. Yeah. It looks like the cap. And and all the stuff I was reading is right at right under eleven billion at the turn of the next century, and that'll yeah. be like the peak. And uh, you know the the reason they bring these things up is, you know, you can have there. There's now different uh, trying to put sort of politics into it, but it's after the neoliberal turn in. Uh, much of the developed world that seems to butt heads with the way that I view things and saying that, you know, we are going to reach this number of people. So isn't it a shame that you're not recycling uh, the plastics properly in your household? Um, There's going to be too much waste because you, uh, can you imagine 12 billion more yous that don't understand? Do I put the steel can in with the aluminum they're both metal Mm -hmm. you know um and that's where it gets like kind of gross for me that's where it gets to where again there's no political understanding of these things yeah it's much like we talked about during the one of the beginning episodes when we were talking about uh covid is we had multiple months where people are not on the road driving into work and that didn't make a dent in the curbing the carbon pollution going into the atmosphere uh it's because of the like societal structures it's not the personal choice of people driving you know a prius versus a camry Mm -hmm. into work uh you can help by getting those sorts of things but you you still have this chain of goods that are shipping all over that are actually pumping out emissions um that's where this kind of comes down for me yeah well that's where at least in the extrapolation of it the issue is not it's not a personal responsibility issue it's not an issue where everyone needs to decide to have only 1.7 kids instead of 2.4 kids or whatever the math would dictate. Um, but there is a planning issue. Like, the um, consumption and the natural resources is a thing that needs to have concern put towards it. Um, you can't, like, the population will naturally uh, adjust to match whatever it, uh, resources we can provide it. Um, and this has happened many times in history. Like some of the classic examples are like the Incas. Um, people often say, oh, they all uh, died because, uh, because of drought or things like that. But the more modern contemporary archaeological analysis is, shows that 
it's not that just a massive drought happened. What happened was they had established places where they had reliable sources of water, but those things were seasonal or they were not consistent with how the seasonal rains would happen. And so while it might have been a great place to live for a certain period portion of a decade, um, they would have to move the whole group to another location for another portion of a decade because of how the seasonal rains and things would happen. Um, and so eventually, and then once you get, you know, conquistadors and everybody coming over and interacting with them and wiping them out militarily, it makes it a lot harder for them to be able to just jump around back and forth to places where they could manage the resources, the limited amount of resources in order to sustain their population. Um, but that's not that there was a population control being put on that group. It's that whenever there were fewer resources to go around, there were fewer babies. <laughs> there were fewer. It's not that uh, it reached the point to where everything uh, collapsed on top of itself. It was more of a the, the response was this equilibrium that had to be maintained on the planet. And you can't undo that equilibrium. Uh, the, the planet will force the equilibrium back. Um, and that happens with other animals, not just human beings. Um, and their populations shrink and swell based upon those types of environmental factors. Um, but that means that if we are going to have countries and we are going to have a planet with a large economy and we are going to have to require lots of people in order to interact with each other to maintain and sustain this thing, um, it's up to it's going to be up to governments to have to make some planning decisions about resource allocation and technological advancement and um, all of those types of things in order to mitigate uh, certain types of uh, population, uh, not disasters, but issues that are going to happen, especially with climate change and the forced migration of lots of huge amounts of people. It's going to be up to large governments to make the decisions that navigate us through it and that leaves them open to making a lot of poor decisions that will make the situation worse, which doesn't necessarily mean that overpopulation is the cause of the thing that is going to be a cataclysm. But it means that if we don't plan properly around our population growth, we can cause inadvertently cause a cataclysm. Yeah, this is, you know, I like dipped my toe into it. Um, not Not me personally, but researching it. Uh, looking at the how this is almost overlapping with sort of that emerging uh, fear of like eco-fascism mm -hmm. of the understanding that, you know, sure, we don't have an overpopulation problem. What we have is a scarcity of resources and uh, there's resources in our country that people in South America are going to want. And as they start going underwater and burning, uh, then they're going to try to come here. So we need to do things like build a border wall, arm the, uh, you know, border patrol, increase the military presence along borders, all of those sorts of things, which, uh, you know, people think happens under trump but like it's like biden has increased border patrol uh 
numbers and said that's one of his goals is making a more militarized border. Um, it's, you know, again, the issues come down to the allocation of things that are needed and understanding that there is an increase in population is only one aspect that you can easily find people pointing at as uh, the scapegoat for for the actual systemic issues of no longer sharing resources in the proper way like the the thing that where people say waste is the bigger concern that's why we're going to run into crisis um in richer developed countries 40 percent of food is completely wasted in poorer countries 40 percent of food is completely wasted Mm -hmm. There's no difference between rich and poor countries, which is another topic I would like to get into in a bit. But the the difference is how it's wasted. In the U.S., uh, 40% of food is wasted because it goes from grocery store shelves to the dumpster um, because it passes expiration date or whatever. Even mm -hmm. though it could technically still be eaten, you could just give it out to poor people. Um you know, go check out your local grocery store dumpster whenever you want and see how securely they lock that thing up. You don't want the liability of some uh, poor person getting sick because they ate ate the one-day-old vegetables you gave them. What lawyer are they hiring? <laughs> so the, the, the flip side of it, though... Look, the uh, grocery stores are also very concerned about theft, which is why they throw all their stuff away. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they throw it all away because then it would people if they could give it away, it would be half a step to then people going like, why do I have to pay for this? Yeah, to why, begin we, why are we paying at all? Yeah. Um, why can we not, you know, do some sort of food stamp system? Um, that doesn't work in this country unless we're at uh, in a world war, um, which doesn't seem likely at this point. No, nothing. Everything's pretty chill. So the. The flip side of it, when, you know, you think, well, we're, this is like kind of the liberal thinking of it is like, well, we're such a spoiled nation. You know, I've got an iPhone, not me, because, you know, I'm not a sheeple, but. You're just, the, your hands are too small. <laughs> the, the waste that we create in this country is just unbelievable. I bet in those other countries, like where they care about nature um, they, they don't waste so much food and yeah, they don't throw it away from the market. 40% of it spoils before getting to the market mm. because they don't have refrigerated trucks to yeah. take it there. It's infrastructure the, issues. It's infrastructure issues. But the thing that, you know, really drives it home for me, the political understanding of these things is, is, you know, as a great speaker once so eloquently put it. Uh, there are no poor nations. There are rich nations, but the people are kept poor. Mm -hmm. You don't go to, you know, people would say India is probably one of the poorer nations. India has 40% waste between harvest and market. And people would say it's the poorest because of how populated it is. Right. The They don't have the infrastructure built to keep food safe. India is not the only country, but where do all of our spices come from? 
you know it's it's well there was countries... one reason Christopher Columbus was trying to get there <laughs> yeah it's these countries where you know open your spice drawer and check out where all of those spices actually come from and you tell me which of those is considered a rich nation they're exploited for their resources the people there don't receive any of the benefit imagine if countries like india where you know kroger's supplier is getting all of these spices to then sell to you for you know three bucks insanely cheap imagine how cheaply they have to purchase it from those places and then imagine if they were actually given in given the amount that they of worth that they actually create by cultivating those spices enough that they could then improve infrastructure to have refrigerated trucks so you could literally have 40 percent more spices overnight in the market Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know um so it's it's these systemic issues where population is not the cause of these things it is a greater degree of um misalignment of of allocation and sorts those sorts of things yeah that that was the sort of the most interesting sort of defining thing that i learned in the research was the difference between population control and population planning and like Mm -hmm. we often hear about it from a population control standpoint um and so we think about oh yeah you people are restricted on how many children they're allowed to have or something like that where actual like population control is is about culling like population control does actually mean we have to figure out how to eliminate human beings that mm-hmm. is what control means planning on the other hand means uh very much like planned parenthood like you go around and you provide information and you figure out methods to make sure that the resources match the group and you try your best to predict into the future what you need to do to make sure the resources keep matching the group. Um, and so it's two completely different approaches. One usually happens retroactively, the, the control. Like, oh man, we, saw, we see some noise in the data that suggests that things are getting out of hand. We need to figure out a way to claw that back and control it. To the point where, you know, it's not just about restricting birth. Um, but it's actively combing up with measures that reduce the population either through actively culling the population or through um, sort of this passive way of doing it, which would be either not providing resources to poor communities, which would make them their life expectancy go down, make their birth rates go down, make their uh, life expectancy of the mother during birth go down, drive those numbers down by just not providing them the resources that they need to survive. And then you can affect the rate because of the other big thing that goes along with this is there is a racist element to a lot of this. And, and either whether that is an active racist element or it is just a byproduct, um, the people that are going to have to be uh, burdened with pop- actual population control type of tactics from different governments are going to be the poorest people or the people from the poorest countries. Um, and it's that is the casualty, quote unquote, that the wealthy 
parts of the globe are willing to sacrifice in order to get the population under control. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to, to the point where it's it has happened in the past, like you mentioned, about driving the poor into areas where they would be more likely to uh, get sick with plague or virus or whatever that would wipe them out. But it has been thought and engineered in both China. There's been programs in America that have been thought about uh, just ways of coming up with a disease that would affect certain people that are like the undesirables of society. Like if they have weak immune systems or they have certain genetic um, abnormalities, if we could come up with a disease that would just really affect them and not really hit the healthy people too much, then we could wipe out not only these people that are a drain on the society, but also wipe out the likelihood that any of them would ever come back again to drain our society with their disabilities and their needs, um, which like drives back into the eugenics thing. But that those ideas are not, those are recent ideas, like from the 30s through the 1970s, things that people had ideas of in the United States of America, things that we actually initiated on people, <laughs> on disabled children and things in the United States of America, forced uh, sterilization programs on people in the United States of America to do this. Um, I mean, this was like at the Dallas hospital in the, in the 80s and 90s, they did sterilizations, unknown sterilizations on women if women came in yeah. with like gunshot wounds or anything like that. The doctors there in the emergency room would be like, she's living a dangerous life. We don't want her to have kids yeah. brought up in this. So they're just going to do it without any consultation or anything. Exactly. So that while <laughs> that that is sort of the big revelation in my mind, not that I didn't totally know it, but the, have it clearly defined that population control specifically means reducing people that already exist. And yeah. population planning is about how to plan for future populations so that we don't have to cull them. <laughs> like, they're two completely <laughs> different approaches to the situation. Yeah, well, the Catholic bishops see no difference between those two. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> but the, you know, it's... The, the other side of this, the flip side of this, is, okay, we're, we're starting to see a demographic shift in much of the world. Um, in the 80s, Asia was the big fear of the population boom happening because the population was just skyrocketing in Asia. Um, that's where the fear came from. Of There's going to be too many Asian people, uh, not enough resources there, so there's just going to be mass migration and then starvation and all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um the barring things from like China, like the the Great Leap, uh, those sorts of uh, issues that were, you know, uh, government controls on certain things. The amount of children people had in Asia like started dipping and is now uh, lower than replacement level in many of the countries. Um, China's. Uh, fertility rate is 1.2 this was you know of course the introduction of the one child policy but also people like left small cities uh small small uh villages and moved to cities and everything and once you're living in a city you're less likely to have four children mm -hmm. you're more likely to have one kid um 
the same thing is happening in Japan. Like Japan, you know, I have a direct experience seeing this is people move from all over Japan to Tokyo. The second they like the only it's such a difficult structure to like understand uh it, do, it makes no intuitive sense because you're like, wouldn't you want to do something else? But no, the way that the companies are structured and everything in a very archaic way that people want to get into the best university. All the good universities are in Tokyo because mm-hmm. the good companies hire directly from those universities. So in order to do that, you have to get into school in university in Tokyo. Um, in order to do that, you have to have a good, uh, high school grades, which is why people, you know, go to those cram schools as young as elementary age in order to pass the entrance exam for junior high to then pass the entrance exam for high school to then get into a good college and everything. Okay. So people move to Tokyo. That's why you can buy a house in the countryside of Japan for like $300. Those towns are begging people to move Mm -hmm. to them because they're just dying uh because people have fewer kids there's 1.3 is the fertility rate in japan they move to places where the opportunities are available and these small towns die out um because medicine has improved so much in so many places that people are living longer and the demographics are shifting in like an insane way yeah the the in south korea it has the lowest fertility rate of anywhere in asia it is point i think maybe in the world it is 0.8 uh people uh per couple is born Mm -hmm. so less than one child per couple um the so numbers wise that means if 100 women today They'll only have 40 children who will then have 16 children if the rate continues, who will only have six children by the year 2100. Mm-hmm. So that's a 94% fewer young people in 77 years right. than currently exists in South Korea. Um, the numbers, again, if you'd want to talk about population, the numbers... Currently, 52 million people in South Korea. The population in 1950 was 20 million. The population estimate in 2100 is 24 million. So it's just going back to 1950 levels. Mm-hmm. But the median age in 1950 in South Korea was 18. The median age in 2100 will be 59. Because people live a lot longer. People live a lot longer and you have fewer young people to shoulder the the workload that is required this is why like it's insane to me that the what we're viewing as like the ai revolution is going into things like well you know we got too many women writing movie scripts so why don't we train ai to do that right right well instead of automating well that's the that's the interesting thing where the ai thing was used to pick off uh, a bunch of things that we we I think we talked about on this like going back to the first episode, but shit that we were talking about in the business world, going back to the early aughts, just like why do I I mean I at that point like in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, I QuickBooks 
for like running a business was almost pretty much totally automated if you knew how to set it up right. Like mm-hmm. you could still be a dumbass and go and enter a bunch of things manually if you wanted to because you had done your books that way all your life. But if you were smart enough to actually set it up to where it was synced with all your accounts and it was synced with your different credit lines and synced with everything, just the internet would keep it updated and current all the time for you uh, without you doing very much to it. Um, And so we were already talking about like there's going to be a big reckoning, especially for just front office type of staff. That's going to be the first thing that goes like it's going to be before manufacturing gets completely automated like there's not going to be a receptionist there's not going to be any people in accounts payable or or billing there's not going to be hr people there's not going to be all that stuff is gone like there will be no more front desk nikki exactly um and but in in a way like those aren't the jobs where that where people uh would be incentivized to really get on the board of like all right we need to like totally turn the income generation environment around we can't continue on this consumerism capitalism train um because we're going to lose all these positions and then how are these people going to survive there's no replacement work for them to do uh what are we going to do we need to provide them a basic income we need to provide them some kind of other kind of safety net um but for whatever reason those i guess considered like soft office jobs um, even down to like being the writer for a television show or whatever, that does not stir the consciousness of the United States to the point where they're like, man, it's going to be bad if we don't have a basic income or a guaranteed income or something in order to, to do this. But if for some reason we like, if once the robot comes out that replaces all manufacturing jobs that we actually don't have in this country anymore, <laughs> that'll be the one yeah. that starts the debate. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah, know yeah. if we're not going to have the debate now when like all the soft positions are being taken. I don't see how it's going to all of a sudden be a big serious debate when the garbage, there's no more people working on a garbage truck cause it's all automated. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> you know, it, it feels orchestrated at that point, like, uh, to, to slowly divide yeah. instead of, you know, uh, but the, the, the machines self-aware essentially at this point, you know, <laughs> uh, capitalism is just going to drive it itself. Um, well, but that's the, that's the thing that's going to be a big, um, issue with the, with the whole global population thing is that if you, you're going to have to have multiple governments that are going to have to work together in order to handle especially issues that are happening in the global South as climate changes causes migrations to happen. And when we know already that the areas in the world that are going to maintain a high birth rate up until the next century are going to be places in the global South. It's not America that's kicking up to reach a billion people by 2100. It's like Nigeria. Um, And so like that, that is going to be an even bigger wedge rather than a thing that brings people together to to uh help humanity out um it's going to be like oh these these nigerians are really draining the global economy with all their population growth (laughs) what if we just bombed them and took all their resources and got rid of all the people there yeah i mean so that's that's the other thing is like the anywhere you know the u.n or anywhere that's talking about population uh, growth being a concern, it is Africa. And it, you know, uh, it's going to play out the exact same way 
as Asia. And it feels uh, to me gross <laughs> to be like, all those Africans are having way too many kids, you know? Right. Um, but the things like those things that are so important, like uh, where people, you know, bring up the point that like China is trying to be the global hegemon and trying to set itself up for long-term uh, hegemony. The, the sorts of work that China is doing in Africa, uh, building infrastructure or whatever, you know, the, the little bit that it does, but it's still, it, it's much more than, you know, the U.S. saying, well, we got charities that take care of that kind of stuff. Well, they don't have charities. Um, they just send Halliburton to do it. Well, yeah, right. Halliburton and KBR basically built the infrastructure of most of Africa and just to extract resources from it. Right, and that's right, how right. America yeah, gets different. it, but we just send our private agencies over to do it for <laughs> the. But China, the working population is expected to fall by twenty percent within seventeen years. By twenty fifty, they're expected to have two hundred million fewer working age people. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the entire population, working population of the U.S. Yeah. Um. And so the the drive for people, one prediction is that uh, immigration is going to become something that that com- uh, countries are like trying to set up partnerships between other countries in order to be like, send all of your people to us. Yeah, and we've got Africa, some manufacturing that needs to be done. Right. Since Africa is going through, um, you know, the global or the population boom currently. That's where it's expected to come from, all of these people. Gee, where have we um, heard this story before? Yeah, I mean it's we we it, got a bunch of again, we got a bunch of labor needs labor in. What if we go get some Africans to do it? Yeah, and that's again, this is why, you know, I feel like this episode is turning into just a case for why our podcast is like important or something. <laughs> Understanding uh, the political implications of scientific uh, discoveries or whatever is, you know, that it just, uh, you know, nobody who's listening to this is probably going to be the decision maker for any of those sorts of things. But I like sharing the information because it's a good perspective to then have, you know, understanding that we could hypothetically feed another entire Earth's amount of population without clearing a single new acre of land mm-hmm. just with our current production, our current technology, our current, uh, resource allocation for farmland. Um, we could fit every single person with the density of Manhattan within the state of Texas on the globe. Oh yeah. Um, it's like the, the wait, but why thing of if you take every human that's ever lived on the planet, including the ones that are here today, but going all the way back, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, and you just yeah. took all their dead bodies and you piled them up. You couldn't even come close to filling even a little portion of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, it's, you know, the that's why it's good to to understand these sorts of topics uh, in depth, I think, and not just think like. You know, one of the points that one of the articles I looked at uh, said is like crowded cities does not equal overpopulate mm-hmm. overpopulation, you know, uh, because you live in Dallas and you have to 
share a bus seat with somebody else, it does not mean that you're the world is about to be overrun with humans. It's you know, I don't know. Well, and that's like what shows like The Expanse, I think, did a good job of like overpopulation was seemingly one of the core issues of the great, um, you know, cataclysm that happened on Earth that then caused people to go off of Earth and go to Mars and then to the asteroid belt and things in the expanse. But the reasoning behind it is the poor planning by the governments at the time when it happened. And then the cascading reactions of people still responding to that poor planning that had happened a century prior that then spawned off like an entire colonial faction on Mars that then wanted to destroy Earth. (laughs) An entire like rebel faction of people that live on the asteroid belt that want to destroy Earth. Um, It wasn't because they're not mad because Earth had too many people. They're mad because of the way that the plan went to take care of the people that it had. And that right. that the planning was so poor that it still fostered on these old ideas of colonialism and displacement. And then that stayed going in perpetuated into the future as they expanded into the solar system. The ideas didn't change. Yeah, the, you know, <laughs> I feel like we come down on this uh, point every single time, but like the the structures and ideas that are currently in place are not good to (laughs) take us into the future (laughs) (laughs) but when but when it all goes bad it's not going to be because we had too many babies it's because we didn't plan properly for having the amount of babies that we had yeah yeah it's it's very you know don't fall into the anti-human trap of of saying that it's you don't want more people um around you or whatever it's very you know like the i i saw uh in a jacobin article i was reading that they were pointing out all the times when we finally hit eight billion people on earth and like the what some would consider a left-wing organization extinction rebellion is like eight billion people (laughs) like imagine just the the emissions now that we're going to have we have too many people on earth it's like that's that, not the issue. But that also ignores a lot of the factors that come that have come with climate science and understanding resource allocation when it comes to that. A main reason why people are incentivized to move to cities and why that's not just like a random coincidence is that from a planning perspective, you as a government, you want your people to move to the cities. You don't want a bunch of rural villages and small towns spread out doing a bunch of good old home stuff because those people that are living in those far-reaching suburban areas are draining way more resources individually than the people that live in cities and in in close quarters and they're sharing a lot of resources. Um, So if if the, the other complaint is, man, we need to reduce the population... The more you reduce the population and the more spread out humans get, the more each one of us ends up consuming and using as far as resources and the more polluting we each individually do. Um, So there is an efficiency in having a lot of people all live right next to each other on top of each other and share a lot of stuff. Way better than having a bunch of sparsely populated areas with people spread far apart from each other. Yeah, 
<laughs> I was watching some TED talk where some guy was talking about the, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he had, I think a book that's called like the, what was it? The, the prophets and the wizards or something like that. Okay. And it's how he describes the, the two different types of views of our future and overpopulation. And his point was like, we need to have smaller communities, but with locally run nuclear power plants until we can get uh, renewables to sustain blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, <laughs> you want 15,000 nuclear power plants across the country? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, there, there is just- like, if you see the other sort of sci-fi extrapolations of this, you have like Elysium and some other ones where it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, in order to deal with the population, we're going to have to like build layers of cities on top of layers of cities and then people will be living in cloud cities and then other people will be living in like orbiting cities that orbit around the moon and everything and that's the only way you're going to be able to deal with it that that is a way to deal with it like we have the resources to do that it would be very inefficient um and it would come at the cost of a lot of poor people's lives in order to create that system but that is one of the plans like (laughs) It is it is a plan that you could do uh, if you if you wanted to. Um, it would be more efficient to do it a lot of other ways uh, rather than doing the the sci-fi way. But that sci-fi way is a way that you can solve for some of these issues with like a hail mary pass at the end if you've really fucked it up <laughs> beforehand. Yeah, but it's yeah. Uh, the the idea is also like uh, I heard on another podcast of. Even if you don't take this conversation seriously, or if you don't, or if you think that overpopulation is a major issue or whatever, if you focus on the planning aspect of how to deal with it rather than being worried about the number going up, it's the same sort of argument that you can have towards focusing on climate change, even if you are a climate change denier, if you don't believe it's happening. Mm-hmm. It would still be worthwhile to implement all the strategies to counteract climate change because you would end up at the end of that at the end of that exercise with tons of sources of renewable energy you wouldn't no longer be extracting all of your energy out of the ground through fossil fuels you would not be polluting the air even if maybe the you can say oh later in the day wow none of the pollution was actually really going to cause a global warming cataclysm but guess what we ended up with a way better planet with a bunch of renewable sources of energy that is way more sustainable for all of us anyways. Um, so if you plan around it, um, there's a lot of efficient ways to maintain our population growth even to 11 billion and beyond if we wanted to go beyond it. Um, so that that's sort of the last take that I have on the whole deal is that it's not a, it's not a doom and gloom type of thing. Um, we, we have a lot of answers at our disposal it's just not falling into the traps yeah exactly that's that's the main thing um so very good good job eric thanks for teaching me about population no problem anytime until next week bye